0: Good bone health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at NOF.org. Thank you for joining the National Osteoporosis
1: Foundation Bone Talk Podcast. As part of our Voices of Osteoporosis Stories of Hope and Inspiration series, today we will address a unique, enlightening, and multi-generational patient-caregiver story. The life lessons shared while learning to live with this disease are part of many patients' daily lives. Today's podcast is created in support of World Osteoporosis Day, commemorated annually on October 20th. The theme for World Osteoporosis Day 2020 will shine a spotlight on osteoporosis as a family affair, with caregivers often providing the majority of care and the disease ultimately affecting multiple generations. I'm Claire Gill, CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and I'm thrilled to have a very impressive mother-daughter team with us today. Their story is engaging and inspiring. Ms. Sheila Jacobs has osteoporosis and has had a fracture. She is living proof that in spite of this, her life continues to be active and fulfilling. Her daughter, Dr. Andrea Singer, is an expert in the field of bone health. Among a long list of impressive credentials, Dr. Singer is Chief of Women's Primary Care, Director of Bone Densitromagy, and Medical Director of the Fracture Liaison Service at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. She has a dual appointment in the departments of medicine and obstetrics and gynecology. And her clinical expertise also includes secondary fracture prevention, menopause, sexual health, and medical and gynecological diseases, to name a few. In addition to all of these impressive activities and qualifications, Dr. Singer also serves as NOF's chief medical officer. We hope you all enjoy learning about their experience and can make some of their recommendations common practices in your daily activities. So welcome, Dr. Singer and Mrs. Jacobs. We're delighted to have you here and really appreciate you sharing your story with us for this World Osteoporosis Day podcast. Mrs. Jacobs, I'm going to start with you, if I may. I want to talk a little bit about what were some of your initial symptoms and when did you first start to kind of have them appear?
2: I learned a while ago that osteoporosis is called a silent disease and it was for me for many years until it wasn't when I had a fracture. In 1987, when I was 47 years old, I had a complete hysterectomy. After my surgery, I was put on estrogen therapy. I wore an estrogen patch for many years. I tried to do all the right things health-wise, so when I entered my 60s, my daughter suggested to me that I should have a bone density scan. And since I always listen to my daughter, I decided to have one. I went for my scan in Kingston, New York, which is where I was living at the time. A couple of days after I had the scan, my primary care physician called and he said, Your results were excellent. You have the bones of a young woman. Of course, I was thrilled, but I had to say to him, That's because I am a young woman. That's right. Yes, indeed. And I still am a young woman, even though I turned 80 this past August. It's just a number, right? It's just a number. In 2003, I moved to Florida, and I continued to be checked with bone density scans approximately every two years. Occasionally, I lapsed a little, and it might have been a little bit more. And I continued the estrogen therapy until sometime in 2003 when I went off it. In 2006, I was diagnosed as being osteopenic. My fracture risk was rated as high. And I had no symptoms at that time and no pain. But my daughter suggested, more than suggested actually, that... I should start medication to treat the osteopenia. I mm-hmm. spoke with my primary care person because I wanted him in the loop as well. And I did start on medication. The three of us, my primary care, my daughter, and I decided that I should be proactive.
3: I just want to add a little something yeah. here if I'm allowed to speak. So, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Go ahead. Um,
3: <laughs> I think all of that speaks to this idea that screening is important, right? There are a number of reasons that we want to talk about risk with patients, in this case with my mom, and that it was important to start to make a risk assessment and decide if any intervention was needed. Times have obviously changed a little bit, and so the labels that we might have used then in terms of osteopenia or low bone mass versus osteoporosis and were important then. What we really do now, and in essence, what we then did at a time, and my mother described how we all sort of talked together about her risk and made decisions about whether she should be treated had to do with level of risk, because we want to identify people who are at higher risk for fracture, whether that's based on bone density, really a combination of bone density, other risk factors, whether somebody's had a fracture previously, and pick the group that's at higher risk for fracture who are likely to benefit from treatment and not over-treat the group who isn't. So as we started to notice declines in her bone density and then looked at the whole picture in terms of increasing age and other risk factors, that was the point at which I sort of said as a practitioner and obviously wanting to keep my mother who was always the ever-ready bunny and could do everything and nothing was ever too much wanting to keep her active, that was when we sort of all decided Maybe it's time to do something and reduce risk for fracture.
1: Can I I ask, when you mentioned, Ms. Jacobs, that then when you moved to Florida, you went off the estrogen therapy, and it might have been again for a variety of reasons stuff. But Andrea, Dr. Singer, did that play a role perhaps in going from her strong bone health, which her first bone density said, to then osteopenia? Was it the drastic
3: loss in estrogen there that might have caused that too? I think that absolutely played a role. So think about the time frame that was mentioned. That was 2003. The results of the Women's Health Initiative came out in 2002. All of a sudden, there were concerns about the use of estrogen, and many providers were uncomfortable continuing that because of potential risk. But we know that when women reach menopause a natural menopause, they can lose up to 20% of their bone density in the first five to seven years following menopause. When women Mm -hmm. are on estrogen or hormone therapy, that delays that loss, it pushes it out further, but if and when they stop hormone therapy, we see the same kind of decline and often it can be relatively rapid. So that might not have been the only thing. It was X number of years later, the older we get, fracture risk goes up, but absolutely no longer having the protective effects of estrogen around I'm sure we're part of it. And that was part of the impetus at the time for making sure that bone densities were followed to see what that loss was going to look like.
1: Right, it's great that you were able to do that and continue that, Mrs. Jacobs, like you said, where you continue to do your bone density test either every two years or shortly thereafter Right. right, is so
2: important for women, yeah. But so we kind of then cut off your story, so... Oh, that's okay. You can interrupt whenever you want. (laughs) I continued on the medication for the osteoporosis, continued to have my bone density scans every two years until 2015 when my daughter suggested to me that I had been on it for an awfully long time and it was probably a good idea. And since my bone density results were coming back pretty stable, I should go on a drug holiday. I asked her to speak with my primary care physician because he's the one who was taking care of me down here, and I wanted to keep him in the loop. I felt that was the right thing to do, and of course, she agreed. So she did speak with him, and interestingly enough, after they finished discussing me, because he knew of her credentials, he uh, asked if he could ask her some questions about other patients of his, and of course, she graciously agreed, and he was very (laughs) pleased about that.
3: Thank, That's thanks, awesome. Mom, for that. the shout out. It's always nice when you know that you have a fan, at least in your parents. Well, right? you know who your <laughs> exactly. greatest fan is. <laughs> I assumed
2: Look, that position after my husband died because he was absolutely her biggest fan. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, no, I remain... Can rem- we stop for one second? Can I sure. just sorry, interrupt
1: one more time? So you mentioned drug holiday, which is something that those of us who are patients or caregivers or obviously working in this field know about. But can we pause for a second and just, Dr.
3: Singer, could you kind of explain what a drug holiday is? Yeah, and I do absolutely want to clarify that because there is no one size fits all. There's no standard recommendation. And indeed, the concept of a drug holiday, in other words, a temporary cessation of using treatment, right? The idea of a holiday is it's not drug retirement. Holiday means eventually you have to come back and go back to work. So it's a little bit of time off for good behavior, or in this case, because bone density is improved, there hadn't been any fractures, There weren't any new risks. The concept, and this only applies to one particular class of osteoporosis medicines, the bisphosphonates, because they have a very long half-life. They stay around in the bone for quite a while even after you stop taking them. So I sometimes with patients use the analogy, they're like the gift that keeps on giving, but they still offer some protection for a period of time even when you're not continuing to dose them. The recommendations for patients who take bisphosphonates are that after a period of time, and it's often about five years on an oral bisphosphonate, that you reassess. Okay, we're always reassessing along the way, but at that point, you kind of look at the patient, right? This is individual decision-making and then shared decision-making with the patient, but you assess their level of risk at that point. And for those who may have seen improvement, who are fracture free, and where risk perhaps is less than when you started treatment, they might be a candidate for a drug holiday. For people who are at very high risk, we don't stop treatment, we're going to continue to treat. Because I think one of the important pieces, and this will continue to come out in my mom's story, osteoporosis is a chronic disease. Just like other chronic diseases, like high blood pressure or diabetes or high cholesterol, we can treat effectively, but we don't cure it. So this requires lifelong attention. But in her case, because she was on a bisphosphonate, because her bone density scores, and in particular those at the hip, and a particular part of the hip, which seemed to be most predictive, had improved we were balancing benefits and risks and thought that a short-term holiday might be
1: appropriate. Got it. Thank you for explaining that. Because again, again, it's something familiar of those of us who are dealing with the disease every day, but some patients and listeners might not be aware of what the drug holiday was on. So let's pick up from there, Mrs. Jacobs. You were on the drug holiday.
2: You understood right. what that meant. And I then, absolutely uh, did. That, that happened. And I remained totally asymptomatic until the spring of 2018. At that time, I went up to Maryland to help my daughter prepare for our annual Passover Seder at my daughter's home. She and I started preparations days in advance, and we prepared a Seder meal and a setup for 59 people. She doesn't do things in a small way. I guess, in retrospect, I overdid things, standing for hours, lifting heavy pots with soup, etc., and I kept saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I thought I was. By the time I came home to Florida after Passover week, I was in a lot of pain. I tried rest and inactivity, and I thought it would get better, but it didn't. Finally, my daughter convinced me that I had to go see somebody I don't like going to physicians. And I did reluctantly go to an orthopedist. I explained what my problems were and the pain that I was in. He took some x-rays and he read them and he said he didn't see any fractures. And he thought that maybe with rest, with physical therapy with painkillers and muscle relaxants, I would feel better. He also did give me a steroid injection in the area where I told him that I hurt. Well, unfortunately, it didn't get a whole lot better. I went for several therapy sessions and I just couldn't do it. When I would leave the therapist who was in the same office that the orthopedist was in, I would be in excruciating pain and it took days to go away, and then I'd go back, and the same thing happened. And after several treatments, the therapist said to me, I really don't think that you should continue the physical therapy. It doesn't seem to be helping. It seems to be making it worse. And some people just don't respond well to that. He said, maybe the twisting and the stretching, and I'm doing the simplest exercise as possible, but maybe it's just too much for you. So I stopped the therapy, and the pain did not go away. I mean, it wasn't as excruciating as when I was doing the therapy, but the pain right. did not go away. And finally, Andrea said to me, "My, you need to see somebody. You need to do something. This is not going working." So I went back to the orthopedist, who said that I should have an MRI, which I did, and lo and behold, it showed a fracture. I have. And where acted. was the fracture, <laughs> Andrea?
3: It was L1. L1.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, That's what I seem to remember. And not that it meant anything to me, but that was was where it was. Yeah. I decided that I was just going to have to learn to live with it. And it was suggested at that time that I go on Prolia. That became a little bit of a problem down here because I had to find a rheumatologist since Apparently, the primary care physicians are not administering it down here. Well, I finally did find a rheumatologist. And when I went to him, I said something or other to the effect of, I have osteopenia. And he said, My dear, you have osteoporosis. Once one has had a fracture, it's osteoporosis. It's right. no longer osteopenia. I started
1: well, it's good you pointed that out, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, I, yeah. Yeah. that
3: was obviously the right messaging, which doesn't always get conveyed. I want to just maybe make a couple of comments or give some thoughts about sort of the whole process. And of course, to this day, feeling a little bit that sort of daughter guilt in terms of, if I hadn't had 59 people, if we didn't do so much, but you have to understand, I'm joking in part, but my mother is that can-do attitude that nothing is ever too much that I think sometimes people see in me, that's exactly where I get it from because that (laughs) is who my mother always was and continues to be. You know, it's the more the merrier. Whatever the issue is, we can sort of do it. And we were the dynamic duo in terms of preparing for the holiday. But in retrospect, it probably was a lot. Not that one can ever predict or know what a precipitating event will be. And that's, I think, part of the important message here, that there wasn't a fall, there wasn't trauma. This was in the course of activities of daily living, maybe a little bit more than most people do on a regular basis in terms of preparing a big meal. But that's what we're concerned about in terms of patients who have osteoporosis, particularly when it comes to spine fractures. It can be with movements that are difficult to stop doing everything and absolutely prevent completely. I thought patients call and tell me that they had a spine
1: fracture from a sneeze that they've had a spine fracture from hugging someone. right? That Again, it wasn't a bear hug. It was just a hug. But again, it's really hard to predict what's going to cause the fracture. And as you said, it's more likely from a fall from a standing height. That's what we're told. That's what we expect. But we need patients and caregivers to know it doesn't necessarily have to be a fall right? It really, you have to determine the level of pain that you're experiencing afterwards and whether or not that really needs to be something that's checked out as you both determined.
3: And I think that's the other important message here that I would want people to sort of hear. My mom had a history of some degenerative changes in her back arthritis, the kind of things that come with age. Back pain is common. And she had had episodes of what I think truly were musculoskeletal pain or strain in the past. So for many people, they attribute those kinds of symptoms to, ah, I pulled something. It must be my typical low back pain again and try to treat it along those lines. And specifically here, I had this heightened level of concern doing what I do and knowing that osteoporosis can lead to an increased risk for spine fractures. So that was the reason and the severity of the pain that really, I think, was why I encouraged her to see an orthopedist to begin with. But I think there are a lot of people who, after a negative x-ray, or at least something that appeared not to show the spine fracture, would have just sort of said, well, this is muscular pain. It's just going to take time to get better. But things didn't fit and they weren't improving and this was significantly impacting her life. And that's when I sort of said, we need to take another look. And I think that doesn't always happen, but what I want people to be aware about is just to have that suspicion that if things don't fit, if somebody is at risk and there's a scenario that could be suggestive of a spine fracture, we need to look for it and not just attribute it to doing too much overuse when something just doesn't sort of seem right. Right. Or not recognizing and listening to the patient voice when
1: the patient is saying, this is not right for me. This is not something I can sustain with this ongoing pain type of stuff. And often, especially in women, as we're seeing a lot more these days when there's discussion of disparities in women's health, that often the woman, when she presents to a healthcare provider and says that there's something that's not right, she knows from her own experience, it's not right, it's not healing, it's not getting any better, that it's often sometimes, sadly, just kind of brushed away as, well, you know, that just happens or it's just age or whatever it is that they come across that we really need patients and their caregivers to know to be advocates, to continue to follow up. And it's okay to question and it's okay to get a second opinion that those are really important things for patient and caregivers to recognize. Almost every healthcare provider is out there trying to do the very, very best for their patients. And we know that, but again, there are times where sometimes things get overlooked or things get passed off when maybe they should be double-checked. So it's a really important point that, you know, then
3: you and your mom both said, no, we're going to keep pursuing this. And I think that you made an important point that, alert. That red flag could be recognized by anyone. My mother and I, I think, have very good open communication in general. And so her being able to sort of tell me what she was experiencing, my being able to sort of say, I have concerns. And the nice thing has always been generally when I make recommendations, when, particularly when it comes to medical care or if I give medical advice, we're able to have an open dialogue. And I think my mother listens But wherever it's coming from, particularly when it's done out of concern, whether it's making sure we listen to the patient voice, whether caregivers are the ones who notice that concern and are sure to be able to voice it and that somebody pays attention, and or whether it's the healthcare provider kind of saying, you know, I'm listening to your story and this is raising some uh, concerns and I'd like to sort of investigate it further. The more we all work together, I think the better the outcomes are in the long term.
1: So, Mrs. Jacobs, back to you. So, what were some of the changes for you, both in terms of diet or lifestyle or exercise or something like that? Did you find that you had to adjust a little bit right now? That I did. I'm
2: sure. I did. As far as diet is concerned, I have always, or for many, many years, followed a healthy diet. So, I didn't have to make any changes there. I had stopped playing golf in 2015 after my husband died. I have no doubt that had I not stopped that then, I would have had to stop it after I had the fracture because twisting is kind of difficult. I have found that when I get up in the morning, and I'm not sure that this is all attributable to the fracture, that it's not a part of the normal aging process. But I wake up, I'm stiff, I hurt a little bit, but it's nothing that I can't live with. Some days are better than others, and on the days that are the other, I find I take a couple of ibuprofen in the morning after I have my breakfast, and it's fine. There's a little discomfort occasionally during the day, but it's something I can live with. I find that I am much more careful in my movements and what I do. I used to be, oh, a bulb went out. I'll get up on the step stool and I'll change it. Well, I don't do that anymore because I'm not willing to take that chance. Obviously, I live alone, so I get somebody in to do it. I'm not willing to take the chance. I am afraid of falling and I'm very careful when I remember. Mm Mm-hmm. I bend carefully or I try to, and I always make it a point to have either my home phone or my cell phone with me. When I go into the bathroom, the cell phone goes with me. Wherever I am, I always have a phone with me so that in the event that I have a problem, I can reach somebody. That's so important. Well, you know, I'm trying to be proactive and to be careful and not have to undergo any kinds of procedures because I really don't want to do that if I can avoid it. And when I was told that, you know, the danger level, I thought, well, I have to try to deal with this in other ways. I mean, if the time comes when I have no alternative, well, then we'll visit that at that time. But I'm not thinking about that now because basically I am still enjoying life. I used to be a really fast walker. When my husband and I would walk, he'd keep saying, Michelle, where, you, where are you racing to? <laughs> and I used to walk on a regular basis, either on a treadmill or outside. And I could go fair amount of distances. I find now that my walks of shorter duration yeah. and then I get tired. So I stop, but I'm what? still basically able to enjoy life. I have friends. I do things with my friends. And so I feel that those adjustments that I've had to make, oh, well, the only thing that really bothers me is that I used to be five feet, five and a half inches tall. I am now Mm -hmm. barely five feet, two inches, but I still, in my mind, I'm still five, five and a half. And Uh I don't realize that I'm not until I stand next Mm -hmm. to my grandchildren, none of whom are really, really (laughs) tall. And I look like I'm standing in a hole. So, and you know, that's a little disconcerting huh. and the fact sure. of that's a big change. And the fact, of course, the way you lose it, I mean, friends said to me, oh, well, you probably had to take all your things, all your pants and have them shortened. Heck no, I didn't. My legs didn't shrink. You tr- shrink in your torso. So my waist and my chest are closer together than they used to be. And that's not (laughs) always comfortable, but it is what it is. And I'm still able to drive. I'm still able to do most of the things that I want to do. And I enjoy a fairly active, well, up until the pandemic came along, you know, a, a social life in my 55 and over community. So you can learn to live with all kinds of things. I've learned right. to live with it. And that's it,
1: learning to live with it and adjust is so important. You've done that. You've made the adjustments you need to. It sounds like you're being really smart about it. I'm curious, do you and your friends talk about bone health at all? Does it come up the way some of the other chronic diseases discussions does? Oh, it yeah. has it it come up.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about it. I tell them about my experience. I mean, I'm not an authority on it. I'm just an authority on how it affected me. And, you know, unfortunately some of them have much worse issues mm. so in the scheme of things i guess i feel that i'm pretty lucky and of course the fact that my daughter is so knowledgeable about this and has been able to guide me has been a tremendous help and source of information and of support and that's been wonderful it is what it is we can, you know you right. have to learn to, as as you get older you get at least i have found you come to more of a realization that this is what life has dealt you. And in the scheme of things, if I had to choose my problems or somebody else's, I'm sure I would take my own because I know what they are. And Mm -hmm. I'm a realist. I'm getting older. I know that. I'm thankful that I'm getting older. And you just go with the flow.
3: You know, on the one hand, yeah, it's always interesting. And from my perspective as the daughter and the healthcare provider, I think looking back all the way along, we were proactive from an early age. We sort of did many of the right things it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback when you know what's going to happen and think about what might I have done differently, You know, should have, would have, could have. And I always talk about this in the context of it's kind of like the shoemaker's kid that doesn't have any shoes. It's the bone health expert's mother who has a spine fracture. So you know, I always sort of second guess would I have done things differently? As good as our treatments are and as everything we do Nothing we have prevents fractures by 100%, though they can significantly reduce risk, particularly with some of the newer agents that we have that really are excellent at doing so. So, would there have been more fractures or a more rapid course in terms of bone loss if we hadn't intervened early and started screening at an earlier age? Maybe. I mean, there's certainly no way to know, but I think the key in general for people, is to think about risk factors. And for both women and men as well, because this is not just a woman's disease, although it clearly affects more women than men. As consumers or patients, we need to be proactive. Right, We need to talk to our healthcare providers. And if we're not sure, ask if we might be at risk for osteoporosis and do I need to be assessed, whether that's through a risk assessment or a bone density test or a combination of all of those things, which is probably the more accurate approach. And then figure out what we need to do and really have risk discussions both on the, am I at risk for fracture side? And then if we're considering treatments on the benefit and risk side of treatments and what we can do, because again, my mom It's been unfortunate that she has had a fracture, but she's been lucky in the sense that she's still active. She still gets to do a lot of the things she loves to do. Life has been impacted. She definitely, you know, I used to race or walk to keep up with her. That's changed a little bit, but she's still been able to travel when we could pre-public health emergency. She was able to come up here and see all of us. We go down there. We do things. But for many people, the fracture can be a life-altering event, and it can mean loss of independence, loss of ability to live on their own or independently. It can mean changes to mobility. Those are the reasons that we treat. We want people to be able to do all of the things that they love to do. Whatever motivates them, drives them, and they enjoy doing at whatever stage of life they are in, that's what we want them to be able to do. And that's why I'm so passionate about this. And I think along the way, was so committed to making sure that, you know, my mom did get screened and that she had these discussions with her healthcare providers and that we kind of approached this as a team. Yeah, that's really important. And so, I mean, we've covered so much and I know we're almost out of time, but
1: I I would like to just sort of end by asking you both a little bit more about the familial connection of osteoporosis, right? Dr. Singer, since your mom has had a fracture from osteoporosis, that increases your risk factor, right? Can we talk a little
3: bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Let's end on an uplifting (laughs) note. (laughs) It absolutely does. I mean, we know that family history can confer risk. Probably most important is a history of a hip fracture in a parent, but a history of any fracture and history of osteoporosis in general definitely increases risk. Being a smaller female, and in this case, a white woman, also increases risk. So there are a number of things that I certainly need to consider, and seeing what my mom has gone through. If I wouldn't have been on top of this already, which I think given what I do, I would have, (laughs) but absolutely means for me that I need to be screened and I need to be proactive and follow things. And so physician heal thyself, right? Or listen to the guidance that you give other people applies here in terms of having my own risk assessment, my own bone density scans, and sort of following what uh, I would probably recommend to others based on the results of those things. That's great. And Mrs. Jacobs, I am going to end with you
1: as mom to your very obviously qualified daughter, but as a mother for a lot of younger people, their grandchildren and those of us who know you, what's your thoughts? What's your advice on people paying attention to their bone health? What would be the one message you'd like everyone to, to walk away with?
2: I think that you need to listen to your health provider. And I think that you need to have scheduled screenings, you know, every two year, whatever the protocol is and make sure that you're getting enough calcium. I have not needed to add that to my diet, but I have, I do take vitamin D supplements, even though I live in Florida and I'm not a sun worshiper anymore, used to be in my youth, but not anymore. And just be on top of the situation. I have been so fortunate in the fact that I have Andrea who has been able to guide me through this whole thing and make sure that I'm doing the right things and that I'm doing as much as I can. I listen to her because I know she knows best. But I try to keep a positive attitude. And every day I get up and say, thank goodness, I'm here to enjoy another day. I wish I could enjoy it with my kids and grandkids, but that too hopefully will happen. It's what life is all about. You know, I didn't have the advantage of being able to know whether osteoporosis was, whether there was a history of it. My mom passed away when she was very young, so I don't know whether she would have developed this or not. But that was then. This is now. And I think you have to just take advantage of all the advances that there have been and do the necessary screenings and listen to your physician because- Basically, those are the choices that you have.
1: That's right. Well, that's very good advice. That is fantastic advice. And then that's how we'll wrap up our lovely discussion here, I think. I want to remind everyone who's listening that there are more than two million broken bones that are caused by osteoporosis annually just in the United States. We know that about half of all women over the age of 50, and as Dr. Singer said, not just women, but a quarter of men above age 50 will break a bone due to this disease in their lifetime. So there's a lot that we can do to, again, prevent and to treat osteoporosis, and it's really an important part of your overall health and well-being if you're going to have an active, healthy aging. So to learn more about prevention and treatment, please visit our website at www.nos.org. We'll also have links to specific Nof resources and informational materials associated with this podcast. Again, I want to thank you, Dr. Singer and Mrs. Jacobs, so much for sharing your story and your expertise with us today. It was really very, very generous of you to give us this time and to share your personal stories. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk as much as I enjoyed talking with our guest, Dr. Andrea Singer and her mother, Mrs. Sheila Jacobs. If you did enjoy this episode, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share this with your family and friends as well. The more we can get out information about osteoporosis and bone health, the more we can do to prevent fractures. Thank you, and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode.
0: Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.